I can certainly say I don't have a clue, but I can make some guesses. If you were to predict the domain or aspect of social life where we might observe the most significant positive societal and or psychological change in response to the pandemic, what would it be? These are terrible questions, by the way. Welcome back to the World After COVID mini-series of the On Wisdom podcast with Charles Cassidy and Nico Crossman. Over the next 20 minutes, you'll be hearing insights and forecasts from some of the world's leading thinkers on what our post-pandemic world may look like for good and for bad, and what kinds of wisdom may best help us navigate this new world ahead. Igor, hello, how's it going? Pretty good, how are you doing? Good, still in the cupboard, still drinking water rather than wine. Still drinking wine. I also switched to water, I think I ran out of wine. You ran out of wine? Oh my gosh. Well, I, I think I'm on the, on the path to becoming an alcoholic, I'm just kidding. I think there's quite a bit of that going around. Uh, you know, yeah, it's kind of dangerous. This dangerous. is probably not the right forum for it, but I did noticed that I was using a beer in the evening to add some punctuation to my day. You know, like, I've ended work now. I'm starting the evening. But you end work every day. So if you use that system of punctuation, you'll be having quite a lot of beers in the evening. So something to keep You know, it, it's interesting that you're bringing a beer because I got this present from one of my uh, students in uh, the course that I taught last term. Okay. And uh, at the beginning of the course, I opened up with Winnie, uh, my dog, Corgi, yep. sitting and, 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 and a glass of beer on the side and this little video, because this was all, of course, through virtual videos. Right. And so she gave me this uh, present. I told, I told her not to, and she still did, like a, a, some chocolate and a gift card for the beer store, because in Canada we have the beer store. The beer it's store. in Ontario. It means that you, the only place where you can buy beer is at the beer store. It sounds okay. very socialist. It's like, you know, like what, a I mean, very literal that, term. Are you being serious or are you being like, I, I'm being absolutely serious that there's only the only two places you could buy beers, beer store and LCBO, which is the Liquor Board of Ontario. Jeez. Uh, and so beer store is like for cheapo type of beers, but they have a they diversified. Anyway, so I thought yesterday, okay, I, I looked up the beer store. Let me go to the beer store mm-hmm. and uh, quickly grab them and ran out of it because I even tried to buy online, being a good citizen, but they don't accept gift cards. Ah. Anyway, so I walk to the corner where the beer store is located because fortunately it's just around the corner from where we live. And the line went all the way to the other street. And this is like 6 p.m. on Saturday. So oh, it's like, that was my brilliant idea to go to beer store. To the point that uh, you know a lot of people are uh-huh. thirsty. Thirsty—that's a—it's a euphemistic way of putting it. I like it. You—you you could do a study, couldn't you, about length of lines outside the beer store? Um, see how <laughs> yeah, it tracks the pandemic. Um, you know, I'm sure you've—you know—I'm sure you've got plenty of other ideas that you're looking into. But you know, if you're running out of uh, study designs, you know, there's one for you. That sounds good. But today we're not talking about the negative uh, alcoholism consequences of the pandemic. We want to talk about the positive stuff, right? That's right. So this is the part two of positive consequences. We like we discussed this a little bit on the last episode, but maybe we could just remind ourselves of what the question is, because this, this question was put to 57 experts. And what exactly were they asked? So, yeah, I mean, uh, what they were asked was not potentially not what they understood, but uh, I hope to have gotten from them the, que- uh, the answer to the question, if you were to predict the domain or aspect of social life, where you might observe some significant, most significant positive societal 
and or psychological change in response to the pandemic? What would it be? So after the pandemic is over. Uh, unfortunately, that's not how everybody answered it, but that's a separate conversation. Okay, so that was the question. Um, all right, that's right. I ha- I mean, it's nice to be talking about some positives. We're going to get to negatives. There's going to be time for that. Let's I have promise. Yeah. I insist. I'm, um, I'm going to dive in. I'm going to play you a quote and uh, we'll talk about it. Sounds good. From the perspective of being halfway through this first wave, at least here in the United States, I would say that one thing that strikes me as uh, as being very positive is that the political fortunes of key populists, and I would say of populism and isolation, isolationism more broadly, perhaps even of kind of long-standing belief in, in individualism, which I think informs partly this populist movement that we've seen, that's all uh, kind of coming apart. It's weakening, right? Because a pandemic is, of course, international by nature. The institutions that help to combat it um, and to prevent uh, a pandemic tend to be multilateral. And even within countries, uh, it's very difficult, as we've seen here in the United States, to confront pandemics amid widespread political polarization and amid a broader distrust in government and expertise, which is, of course, associated with populism. And so partly for those reasons, I think we are seeing the political fortunes of obviously the likes of Donald Trump, but also, you know, populists elsewhere in the world that have been hard hit, Mexico, for example, Brazil, Bolsonaro, uh, just today, uh, was diagnosed with COVID-19. We, we see the political fortunes of some of these populists declining. Okay, so we're clearly not avoiding some pretty contentious stuff here, uh, Igor. We've stayed away Never. from politics in the past uh, a little bit. Um, yeah, I don't think there's any avoiding it anymore. But who is this? Who are we listening to? So Daguma de Groot, he's an associate professor of environmental history at Georgetown University. And he is a historian uh, among the list of this uh, okay. 57 uh, scholars. And mm-hmm. um, what's really remarkable about him is and why I wanted him to be part of the group is because he has studied how in the past uh, societal changes due to not pandemics, but uh, a climate change a process, for instance, the little ice age in Western Europe, uh, in the Netherlands, for instance, in the... Um, you know, in post-Enlightenment period, actually, how it led to various uh, behavioral changes. So, what wait, sorry, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Sorry, you just, you've just brushed right over that. There was an ice age in... Yeah. But what? Yeah, so in the Western Europe, there was a mini ice age where the temperatures dropped and the whole uh, Netherlands, like think of Netherlands, yeah. uh, Charles. When you think of Netherlands, uh, do you, can you imagine... Tulips. Yeah, but, but can you imagine snow? Mm. rarely right like it's wet not really bicycles I mean, like, have, um beer yeah, bicycles tulips, but like windmills but but not necessarily no. uh ice skating right no however if you look at some of the paintings the paintings from uh, uh late renaissance and the uh, you know like early enlightenment period you will see that in fact uh, folks in uh, the dutch painters they painted people in the snow there was actual snow ah, and people were skating right. and so that's because there was a period of a, a little mini ice age so is he, you say he studied how that had an impact on the culture? Yeah, yeah, he studied that. And he's like in charge of this kind of understanding uh, the general sort of ideas of climate change and how it's unfolding right now. 
Uh, interesting. This, this for me was uh, an interesting point, what he was getting at here, was this idea that yeah, a pandemic is a global problem. So right. um, political propositions that suggest we can solve things on a national level will struggle in the face of such a global problem. So he was suggesting that populists, which tend to be nationalist, may well find themselves coming undone somewhat because this is, you know, it's a global problem and we're probably going to be facing more, not fewer, global problems uh, in the sort of coming 50 years. Uh, so it seemed quite optimistic. And also, something we didn't mention, this is from July. So it's right. you know, it, it's a little while back. But I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go as far as to say De Groot predicted uh, Trump losing the election. But he did kind of <laughs> give us a little hint that maybe something was going on there. Well, yeah, so it, uh, it will be a volatile period. Of course, the question is if, if this will be a singular event, uh, whether we will see the same situation in Brazil or mm. in other parts of the world where populism has had some appeal, be it Britain, for instance. Do oh, you yeah. think uh, that something will happen in Britain? What, the, the, the pandemic will lead to people rejecting populism and nationalism? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, suddenly you think that uh, Britain will open their arms, stretch their arms well, towards their God. brothers across the channel and to say, well, let us be part of the EU again? Yes, it was a terrible mistake. We've changed our mind. What, what, what were we thinking? We apologize. Um, no, I don't see it happening because, you know, once it's yeah. very hard to change people's minds. But just, I don't know, it was just Plus British. Yeah, yeah, especially. Populism is on the, you know, it's very well documented. It's on the rise, you know, uh, in many nations across the earth. And it was just interesting that he was suggesting this could be something that might begin to make that less popular, <laughs> make populism less popular. But I I don't know. I don't know if people, that's sort of suggesting people think rationally about these kind of things. I'm not sure if that's necessarily the case. To some extent, yeah. I mean, again, the question is, is this about now? Is this about the future, right? Like, that's what I mentioned yeah, at the very yeah. beginning. To what extent do people answer this with respect to what will happen yeah. several years after the pandemic is over? Which means you have to first imagine the situation that the pandemic is over and consider this not to be a short-term event, as some people were thinking at the beginning of the first wave or even in the at the end of the first wave, maybe in the summer. But to think about this as a long-term event, because clearly now, and we are now approaching February, right, mm -hmm. that uh, we will not be out of it even next February. Mm. So in most parts of the world, uh, people will not be even, it's logistically impossible to vaccinate everybody by this part of the world. And some countries didn't even start vaccinating anybody yet. Apparently Britain's doing quite well. Yeah, but, you know, if, if Britain vaccinates everybody and then yeah, the true. rest of the world, even like the neighbors in the EU don't, then yeah. uh, you still have the same problems. Before. Well, exactly. I mean, that's exactly the point this this um, degree right. is making, because I'm saying, hey, Britain's doing well. But, you know, if the nation of Britain, you know, vaccinates its whole population, that's not really a solution to something which is a global pandemic, you know, unless unless yeah, no one right. ever comes in or out of the of Britain forever. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's the problem. Or they will have these draconic rules that they just introduced here in Canada, which are super reasonable, and they should have introduced them a long time ago, but nobody dared Right uh, about uh, people then staying at their own expense at the hotel yeah. at the airport for two weeks or something yeah. like that. Yeah, having to buy beer from the beer store. Or is that is that 
is that a new draconian pandemic measure or is that all that's just a canadian oh thing? no that's that's been like i think since uh, well it's it's interesting it goes back all the way to the prohibition i mean when oh, the prohibition geez. ended okay. uh, the only the government in uh, ontario it's not throughout canada in quebec it's different i once asked somebody at the store when i just arrived it was very green arrived in canada and i went to a store in uh, a supermarket and asked him oh, where, where can i buy some wine or beer here and he looks at me like because i thought that there was like an extra there's another thing that's called the wine rack that sells uh wine okay. uh, in addition to lcbo this liquor board of ontario and he looks at me and it's like what do you think we are back <laughs> <laughs> interesting see what hope is there for the for the planet and, and nations when even like the different you know areas within canada have these kind of tensions well, the, the Quebec and the rest of Canada, I think that will not go away. That's It's a continuous... Uh, yeah. We're not going to solve that one today. No, probably um, not. Right. I am going to uh, dive into my second quote of the day. Sounds good. I think there are two things, two critical things. One, I think the idea of globalization as inherently virtuous must be evaluated. This requires major reassessment. Second, uh, there must be really active efforts to preserve ecological diversity and the preservation of habitats for non-human animals and plants, which need to be separated from the human habitat. And, and I think to realize those, I think our, our motivational system needs to change. And, you know, right now, over the last several hundred years, especially in the Western half of the hemisphere, uh, just a major virtue uh, was based on achievement and social comparison. Now, this needs to be changed to the one that is based on more holistic value and holistic virtue of coexistence of all elements on the earth and beyond. Interesting. What's well, interesting? Yeah, I do have quite a lot to say about okay. this. <laughs> but before I do, tell me about this gentleman. So this is Shinobu Kitayama. He's a psychologist and one of the preeminent cultural psychologists on this planet. And mm. he is the current... Uh, president of the Association of Psychological Science. So he's the, the biggest fish there is mm. uh, in terms of uh, psychological science sort of functionaries, but okay. also a, a really smart guy. And I'm uh, saying that not because he was one of my, my co-supervisors in graduate <laughs> school in Michigan. Mm -hmm. He really is a remarkable human being. Okay. This was from June, right? So we just like we, you know, making, yes. being disciplined yeah. enough to, to say when, you know, because it's We have to remind ourselves yeah, that's right. of the biases. So it's from June. Um, so there's kind of a couple of things here. But the first point that I thought was interesting, this was when he says, uh, we need to basically reevaluate the idea of globalization as, as inherently virtuous. That sort of pricked me slightly because I do think mm -hmm. of globalization as inherently virtuous. Uh, but I have heard people starting to say, you know, well, you know, if, if we weren't whizzing around the planet all, all the time, etc., you wouldn't have pandemics, you know, the end, look what's happened to the environment with people flying less and traveling less. Um, so I'm getting a bit nervous around the building. So, so you agree with him? I No. Well, hmm. because I, he's I, saying that it's not virtuous. No, inherently so I, virtuous. I, I, so it has to be revalidated. Yeah. So I'm dis. No, I'm not disagreeing with him. 
I'm getting okay. nervous around people saying that perhaps globalization's not a great thing because it seems to be not many steps away from a nationalist kind of way of looking at the world. And I see. I don't see yeah. that it's not a straight line, but it's just like this idea that globalization is something we should perhaps be rolling back on sort of makes sense from a practical perspective, but it does sort of put forward the argument that really we should just shrink back within our borders and we should have a more kind of isolationist approach to the world. And I'm a bit worried about that. Yeah, but uh, this is taken a little bit out of context because in the same interview, he made it somewhat more clear that it's not really the globalization in general that he's talking about. So not like the movement and so on, but really the economic competition okay. that is often associated with globalization. The stuff that folks often protest in front of the G7, G8, or all the other G summits. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not really that they protest against people moving from one country to another. Gosh, I mean, they all come from different countries when they protest. Yeah. Uh, so they are definitely for that. And they are for international exchange. I think what they're against is the economic a sort of like cutthroat mm. approach mm. of the uh, neoconservative uh, yeah. model of uh, rational self-interest that is driving much of globalization. Yeah, I mean, and that's fair. I mean, you do have, what was interesting about Brexit was you had people on the right who were anti-EU, but you also had people on the left who were anti-EU from this perspective. You know, they were mm -hmm. saying this is, you know, just prioritizing economics and you're, you're eroding barriers between countries just because it's better for business. I suppose I'm coming at it more from the point of, I think, you know, cultural exchange is a good thing. Um, so that they're, Absolutely. You're, you're, I don't think anybody would disagree there, do you? I know some people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah. It is a bit of a, um, yeah. there's a line that runs from, well, you know, we should be independent and be able to grow all our own food and not, right. you know, build up food miles to, well, maybe we just don't have to worry about what's going on in other parts of the world. We should all just look after our own gardens. You know, it's a, it's a short line, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, there are different philosophies about that. In fact, if you think about sort of like uh, the more sort of socialist communal orientation, you can imagine that the notion of sustainability would depend not just on redistribution of resources to produce them at the cheapest value, but rather uh, at sort of like try to have a more harmonious system where you can have a discussion about how the cheapest value is coming about and that the people whom you get those chips or get those shoes or get those bags from are not paid slave labor uh, mm -hmm. wage, mm -hmm. if at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I mean, but that's a separate conversation about yep. the. Uh, that aspect of globalization. Yeah. Um, it's much harder to entertain it if it is uh, truly globalized and lack, uh, not really transparent. Yeah. It's easier to do it if it's in the same country. Yeah. There was uh, another element of this that I thought was kind okay. of interesting. We, it's about this idea of the preservation of um, habitats for animals okay. being important for humans <laughs> and that's there's you know i'm probably biased a little bit vegetarian you know so i'm declaring my sort of position here but um he's sort of saying mm -hmm. that perhaps this will make humans who have no interest about in the welfare of animals say not not all humans but humans who do not care about animals at all may now realize the value of um preserving habitats for animals so that right. we don't have more pandemics so it, it's the, it's become clear perhaps through this for 
for self-interested humans that they need to allocate some resources to preserving habitats for animals. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that idea. I don't know if that will happen, but that's uh, it's up to countries that, unfortunately, again, this is happening more in those parts of the world where uh, there's little oversight and their incentives are stacked stacked against it. But maybe that will change. Yeah, it's just it's it's kind of interesting because the idea of you know uh, we're all connected and you know animal life is important as well has had a sort of new agey quality to it in the past yeah you know, that's the baggage yeah whereas the pandemic is sort of making it you know, underscoring the fact well, it's not just a nice idea you know we are actually all connected <laughs> so we, we we do need to yeah. even if we don't care about the animals even if we care just about ourselves right. it is in our interest to to preserve the habitat so it, it just seemed to like have a, a sort of a hard rubber hitting the road kind of quality to it um whereas i've always heard this idea before uh, as a sort of a vague um new agey kind of concept Okay, but let me ask you this. Do you think that this ideas that we will actually reevaluate globalization and we will oh, yeah. actually more holistically approach yeah. this will happen? And if so, do you think that will happen after the pandemic is over? Well, if I had to say, I think mm-hmm. probably not. I, <laughs> okay. What I've been, actually kind of the interviews I've been going through for this podcast as well, it does seem to be a lot of sense of like there's a real danger that we will just right. move past this, say, whew, the pandemic, that was a bit nasty, wasn't it? And then we just go back to business as usual. So that's, if I had to call it, I, I would say the world after the pandemic is going to look, uh, unfortunately, really quite similar to the world before it. Oh, uh, you think so? I don't think so. But uh, I, I think that the world, well, it depends on how long this lasts. The Geopolitically, it will definitely not look the same as before. How so? Oh, uh, I mean, I think I, th- I think you moved to the wrong country, man. You should have been moving to China or something like that. Oh, okay. Because uh, <laughs> I mean, there's that part happening, and I, I think it's it's kind of just a matter of time. Uh, but also, there'll be quite a bit of vaccine diplomacy happening uh, in the next couple of uh, months and probably years, mm-hmm. and that will have its consequences as well. Yeah, but I mean, those are that doesn't sound like a large structural change that's going to completely reimagine society that sounds like some political negotiation will have to happen but you know people will still be living pretty much in the same way doing the same things i'm not so sure about that because the borders uh, in most european countries are currently closed so even the ideas of sort of like free movement uh, will probably be evaluated in some ways mm. and then uh, geopolitical alignments uh, because of who is getting the vaccine so in where you can travel uh, the freedom of traveling will probably depend on uh, whether your country is safe. And all those factors will be playing a role. And in the meantime, the countries that will be safer will be able to uh, advance economically much better than others. So you will have this astronomic uh, growth relatively to other countries. And uh, you will see that in China, you will see that potentially in some other countries, and that will have consequences. That's true. I suppose the question is when, because you're talking about after the pandemic. So what what do we That's mean? Right. When is after the pandemic? Is it like one, once this has been eradicated across all nations? Because if it is, then there won't be an advantage for one country and over another. Or if it's, you know, because you're right, there will be some countries that manage to get a handle on this sooner than others. But then does that count as the pandemic being over? So, so first of all, Charles, we will never eradicate the COVID. 
let's just say it's not possible. It will be an endemic. And uh, a lot of folks here, including Nicholas Christakis, have said that even mm. uh, back in June. Uh, mm. Because of the mutations, it's just a, it's more a matter of preparing and catching up in terms of our ability to tolerate the virus in the system. Mm. So particularly in uh, the developing world, mm. I don't think even by 23 we will be out of it. So it's just like maybe uh, we will be able to control it better because mm. uh, most of the population has been vaccinated. We have better medicine, mm. but it will be, become endemic. Mm. So from that perspective, I don't think we'll be ever over it. But I mean, like about 23, 2023 mm. is uh, when we'll see some changes. Okay. Well, I think um, things got a little heavy. Um, I think we should have some positive changes, um, Igor, from your, That's right. your folks. <laughs> What have you got for us? Okay, so let's uh, let me play some, uh, and then uh, we'll see how it goes. Nice. So, in this domain, what I would say is that you know these kinds of mass community stressors or even traumatic events provide this opportunity for us to to come together as communities. And one of the positive things that we've seen is this sort of enormous outpouring of um, behaviors that reflect help. Uh, helping behaviors towards one another in our communities. So, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, you saw high school students playing musical instruments for residents of nursing homes who were isolated. Um, you see um, people of the and communities who ha- are more advantaged, who have more financial resources, giving to those in their communities who don't. Um, people taking meals to um, to older neighbors who are unable. Um, uh, to go to the grocery store, to, um, to leave their houses as readily um, because they're more vulnerable. Um, and something that we know from psychological research is that um, in moments of stress, when we give to others in our communities, when we help, um, those behaviors are a- actually have a stress buffering effect for those who are helping. Um, so they're not uh, only positive for the people who receive the help, um, but giving of ourselves to others actually provides a stress buffering effect that prevents some of the negative health consequences of experiencing stress um, for those who are doing the helping. And so I think this is an opportunity um, for us to become more engaged with our communities and, and more committed to supporting and helping one another. Wow. That, I like that. I have not. It's more, much more positive. Yeah, that's the nice work. Um, who Who is it? When is it? What's going on? Okay, so this is uh, Katie McLaughlin, and she is a professor of social sciences at Harvard University. She's a clinical psychologist, okay. and uh, she looks at behavioral and the brain development of children and adolescents. Hmm. And this is, if I remember correctly, from uh, late November, so right after the election in the United States. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's interesting because that's, you know, five months later than some of the quotes we've heard. So it's worth keeping that. That's right. It's one of the last uh, yeah. interviews I did. And it's quite, it's, no, I like it. It's positive. It's upbeat. So, what, what, yeah, why did you want to share ah. this one? Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of solidarity. And the reason I want to talk about solidarity is because it was one of the most frequent themes when talking about the positive possible positive consequences after the pandemic is over mm. that people will somehow figure out a way to come together as communities and share with each other because that's the only way to do it so the researchers who suggested solidarity as a possible theme for positive uh, change after the pandemic they're like, well it's just natural that it will happen what do you think about it what do you think i, about I like this? it i okay. mean what 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 um i thought of when i heard it was okay 
this interesting idea that uh, not only when you help people, uh, not only does it in a stressful context, it obviously the person receiving the help is yeah. benefits, but also you giving the help it ha- helps you manage your own stress, which is interesting because it right. shows that a bad situation. So, okay, put it this way, helping I'm going to be really simplistic about this and you can add the uh, more technical language afterwards, but helping, we like to help people. We like to help Mm -hmm. people and a bad situation creates opportunities for us to help people. So in normal times, everyone is kind of independently getting on doing their own thing. But when it's, Right, right. But uh, but a pandemic creates lots of opportunities for us to to do this activity, which is is beneficial to both the receiver and the giver. So a bad situation creates opportunities for us to do something that we would like to do more. Um, so I, I, that's what I that's what I found interesting about it. Yeah, I mean, I like this idea that the stressors lead to like this response that has this positive social consequences. Hmm. But. There are two things that I find a little bit tricky about it. And one is the one that nobody talks about. And the second one is just the uncertainty. So let me start with the second one. Well, okay, during the time of the pandemic, when the stressors are there, you can get to the sense of community as a response. But then the pandemic is over. And remember, that's what I'm asking here, right? Mm. What will happen after the pandemic is over? And now we just discussed maybe it will never be really over. True. People will get used to it, yeah. uh, or it will be at least over in some countries in the way how it is right now with lockdowns. And so the question is if people will maintain the sense of community, if they will go to the old ways. And you said that maybe they will just go to the old ways. Mm-hmm. So that's one big question. So there's a lot of uncertainty. But the other thing that nobody is talking about, at least in my opinion, is that, okay, you can have this kind of sense of community in principle, but then how are you supposed to do that if you have to be stuck at home in lockdowns and you can't even see anybody except for the uh, two meter distance when you're outside? Mm. So there's this whole idea of sort of virtual communication. And Mm. that, of course, is linked to inequality because, you know, some people don't even have access to Mm -hmm. uh, either data on their cell phone or internet or whatnot. So to me, that presents a problem for community building. Uh, There's, I think, not enough even from the government in terms of like how will we be able to stimulate a growth of the virtual communities if only those who are very privileged can afford doing so. That's a big issue for me. So are you saying that certain groups will not be able to access this the benefits of this community building because you know it's a pandemic so you're not allowed to interact with each other unless you have access That's to right. virtual platforms exactly 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 mm. so like the, the type of community building that has to happen this has happened in the past in the in the face of stressors we can't have it uh, per governmental regulations we can't see each other at least physically, and only those and those who can see each other, who can afford seeing each other virtually, that's not equally distributed in the population. So this this great opportunity to re- counter the stresses through helping is only available to certain sectors of society. Yeah, those who do lead them the le- need the, need them the least. Yeah, well, that that's seems kind of to be an, a recurring theme. Eagle, this is supposed to be the positive episode. Well, I'm just we are, we are thinking about the possible things that we yeah. we could fix right yeah, like yeah, i mean yeah. it's not that it's not that hard to fix this issue i think like providing equal access uh, uh, to the virtual technologies i know in the uk in the last general election it was a surprisingly large it was on all the manifestos was you know universal access to broadband etc it was you know right up there with kind of improving schools so it is becoming something that in the UK, at least, people are thinking about as a serious uh, issue. Yeah. 
I mean, here in Canada, it's a big issue, especially in rural communities, because it's a dramatic inequality in terms of broadband access. Uh, if you are outside of the big city, uh, middle-sized cities, the chance that you will have internet in general is not very high. Mm-hmm. And uh, even like access to 3G, and we're not talking about 5G, we're talking about 3G, mm-hmm. uh, through sort of cellular access to data, which is also capped, is not very present. Uh, just like a few hours away from uh, where I live in Toronto, uh, where we have a cottage on the lake, there is virtually no internet access. And it's impossible, virtually impossible, unless the, the Skylink satellite from <laughs> Elon Musk's satellites yeah. start working to get it. Yeah. Well, God help us if we, we that's the plan. Elon Musk saving the world. <laughs> Elon Musk Ro- saving Ro- us all. Rockets and satellites. Um, <laughs> I'm going to just throw one tiny little thing on the end of this. Um, Someone I was chatting to the other day was saying the the virtual platforms that we have, which are wonderful in so many ways, almost make it too easy to just pretend that things aren't as bad as they are. Like, you know, this this friend was describing that over one weekend, you know, she went from everything being fine to lockdown happening, school going online yeah. for her children, both of her and her partner working from home. And it's almost means that we, it's not that we don't, address the problems because obviously they're being taken pretty seriously but the fact that it's so easy to just sw- for some sectors of society just switch over to this other model is there a danger in that well i don't know what do you think i don't know i'd never thought of this before i thought thank god we've got these platforms so we can just carry on and i guess obviously it would be a lot worse if we didn't have them but it did make me think that it's a way of avoiding perhaps you know really facing the the problems we're in I don't know. I haven't quite fully formed that thought, but do you know what I'm getting at at all? Yeah, I mean, do you mean that uh, we do, we can con- many of us can continue working, uh, yeah. not have to go back to work, don't have to change? Uh, yeah, so maybe then these platforms will actually lead to lower likelihood of ch- introducing some long-lasting structural yeah. changes because we can everybody's just yeah. Because we can sort of get by like this. So it yeah, removes yeah. the pressure on maybe addressing some of these things. But again, it will be, yeah, I mean, you're probably right because uh, people who cannot afford being at home, who have frontline workers, uh, unfortunately, despite all the lip service that people are paying in the governments uh, towards protecting them and so on, in terms of the structural changes, I don't think it's hap- happening much in terms of, you know, changing the station on the public transit that they have to use or some other means through which they have to get back to their work. Because people uh, care less about them, unfortunately. It's a horrible thing to say, but, mm. uh, you know, they are not the middle class uh, taxpayers that mm. people in North America and in Western Europe care most about for their re-election campaigns. Yeah. So, interesting. Yeah, you're probably right. We will probably be less changed than there mm. would have been otherwise. But maybe that's a good thing. Maybe introducing the changes of creating sort of more boundaries and public transit between people mm-hmm. are not good. Who knows? Well, I want to hear... Your last quote. My sense is that what the pandemic has done is make people appreciate more the importance of relationships with other people, since that's been so dramatically taken away. And at least in affluent Western societies, we seem to be chasing stuff more and people less. And this may get us to reorient our, rearrange our priorities. And I think that's a good thing. Relatedly, and this comes to the surface, especially in connection with wearing masks in public, 
uh, it may enhance our concern for the welfare of other people rather than just ourselves. It's been undersold that wearing masks is mostly to protect other people from you and less to protect you from other people. Uh, if that had been sold more so that you, in a sense, had this feeling of public responsibility for the welfare of others every time you went outside, I think that would enhance our sense that we're all in this together. Yeah. <laughs> um, who is it? So this is a former uh, podcast guest. Yeah, uh, this I is Barry Schwartz. Barry Schwartz, uh, episode something or other. Wisdom at work. I can't remember the number, but it's a classic. It's in the archives. It's a classic about a the, yeah. That's right. It's about uh, the, the author of The Paradox of Choice. And uh, a former, uh, he's the emeritus professor from Swarthmore College. Mm-hmm. He now lives in California. Okay. So he's been studying the economics, morality, wrote all sorts of books. Okay. What, what is this, November, June? When is this? Just to get to give him... This is actually from June. So this is the oh, late June. So I, this is one of the earliest ones. So we jumped back here again okay. to one of the first uh, recordings I made. Yeah. So, yeah, well, what about what Barry was saying was of well, interest like to you? Common theme, right? Like sort of yeah. this kind of prediction of reduced individualism and all like we're getting it. Like this is the fourth quote. And a lot of them have this to some extent, right? Mm. That uh, even the Groot, who is a historian, and Kitayama and Katie was talking about sort of getting together and becoming more of a community. And so this kind of prediction of reduced individualism, reduced egocentrism, mm. focus more on friends and family and our relationships. And um, it's interesting. So it's, it's a common theme. It's a continuation of this idea of solidarity. But at the same time, I'm thinking, is that really going to happen? Is this really true that we'll become less egocentric? Because I could also see how we'll become more egocentric towards uh, those or mistrusting towards those we don't like who are not part of our in-group. Yeah. Or is it just more like an aspiration? Like his uh, well, hope I think, that, yeah, I don't know. I, the, the first part where he says, you know, we've been chasing stuff more than yeah. people. That kind of makes sense that during the pandemic, you're going to see the value in relationships because you you don't have them anymore so you you miss them um so perhaps it might recalibrate us a little bit um that's right but the second point when he was talking about the masks wearing masks should be seen as an opportunity to do a public good i don't know like particularly in the states it seems like i'm gonna go out on a limb a little bit here but it doesn't seem like there is an idea of a public good um it it's much more about how much is this infringing on my personal freedom? That seems to be yeah. the question people are more concerned with. I don't get a lot of a sense that if it had been pitched as this is for the public good, it would have been any more successful. It's a little bit unfortunate, of course, because I think what Barry was talking about is uh, the lost opportunity of, of promoting that because, look, you have yeah. to wear a mask and obviously wear it to protect yourself. But like, to use this mask wearing as a reminder that by doing so, you also help the community can almost like re-emphasize the value of the community. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's happening here either in Canada. So I don't think people emphasize that much that the masks are not just for you, but they're actually for protecting others from you. But do you think it's just, um, I mean, this comes up obviously in wisdom research a lot, the idea of the common good. Is that a nice idea that we've just spent so long not inhabiting that, people just don't get it 
like and I might be including myself in it you know it's just the I we have grown up in individualistic cultures and yeah. are, are we just kind of daydreaming to think that this idea of the common good is something people still would orientate their lives around in any meaningful way Oh, it's very complicated. I don't think the idea of public good is well defined, and mm-hmm. it's kind of this kind of underspecified construct. It's like, uh, who is part of the public? Yeah. Who is part of the common? Those people who look like me and dress like me and yeah. uh, make the same amount of money as I do, mm-hmm. or is this like uh, the what Canadians uh, now call underserved segments of the population, mm-hmm. people who you know, frontline workers? Mm-hmm. Are they are they part of the public? Or they should be. But uh, yeah, so basically, the defin- it's part of part of it is the definition. It's kind of vague. The more and the more vague something becomes, yeah. the less concrete, uh, harder it is to figure out how exactly to orient yourself towards that. And the other thing, of course, is that you know, public good is. I mean, I think to some extent we do pursue it. We hope to pursue it, but then other things come in the way. Mm. And uh, we get sidetracked. And so I think like everybody wants to be a nice person. I mean, I, I would say most people want to be nice. Mm-hmm. They want to see, think of themselves as good people. Yeah, It's just like this kind of definition of what is a good person and how many obstacles stand in the way. So there's this aspiration mm-hmm. to do the good. But it's kind of hard to figure out what exactly that is and who is part of that group. Yeah, and um, well, what's quite nice about the concept of a pandemic is that everyone's part of that group. I mean, it's <laughs> it's just cold. It's just black and white. Like the virus. Oh, you is- would think. Ah, oh, but do you think so? Do you really? I mean, come on. Like the the vaccine distribution and all the brouhaha about that. No, and, no, uh, I'm, I'm. It's it's not happening to reflect this but, exactly. But but my point is, it's an example of something that has to be attacked at the level of the common good. Like I- that's right. Like rationally, it should be. Yeah, and yeah, then you be. have like this billionaire couple who flew to Nunavut uh, to get uh, to rob like indigenous populations of the handful of the vaccines that they received. Like mm. I'm not making this up. So like some billionaires decided to jump the line in Canada. And, and, and now, of course, uh, they have a trial that gets all okay. about. But, uh, but it just, just, just the audacity. Mm. To take it from uh, native populations who really need it because if they have an outbreak there then it's really a problem because there's barely any doctors there yeah anyways yeah um, public good public good i mean it is a big question um but and especially when like you say who who is included in your circle um as we become more divided um yeah. whether it's left or right or Brexit, pro-EU, um, there's so many ways that we can draw the circle smaller and smaller. That's right. But it- I think uh, the key thing for this interesting quote from Barry Schwartz is the idea of reevaluating what you have taken for granted. And I think we mm-hmm. emphasized that before when we talked about what kind of wisdom you need now. Uh, but I think it's also a hope that people will, to some extent, reevaluate in the future what they have taken for granted yeah. and uh, as, a, as a necessity potentially and uh, a focus on other things that maybe are more meaningful. So again, it's more aspirational. Yeah. And I view all of this uh, positive consequences more as aspirations and less as yeah. a given because, of course, there's a huge uncertainty. Um, and it's there's going to be certain behaviors that one needs to adopt if we have any hope of these positive consequences coming into play, which is a nice transition to the next episode. So that's what we're going to be looking at next, right? 
Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap it up and let's talk soon about how we actually make some of these things happen. Let's do that. And that's it for today's episode of the World After COVID miniseries. Thank you to our listeners. Igor, big question. If people want to know more about the project, where do they go? They can go to the www.worldaftercovid.info. Please stay well and safe. Goodbye. <laughs>